I couldn't help but notice that you opened your banana chimpanzee style. <laughs> yeah, I do that. I learned that trick. That's a life hack. Congratulations. This is the first. This is not a metaphor, people, by the way. It's episode that, of the show. He, he referred to, he, I, I'm referring to the fact he opened an actual banana. Yeah, I, this is the first episode of the show in which we will feature weekly life hacks. Oh. Little tips this, and well, tricks. We will zoom to the top of the charts. Oh, yeah. Get ready to rate us on iTunes, people. Because we have banana opening life hacks. It's like the I old... think we should just do this one over and over again. We should not come up with new ones because this one works. It's like the old comedian trope, you know, like, you know, uh, do, you, do you ever notice how... That was a Seinfeld episode. Yeah, where, you ever notice you how... You ever notice how... Rooney kind of thing. And, yeah. But he was like self-critical about it, like self-referential about it. But yeah. so, so this is like, you know, a life hack is like, do you ever notice how... But like without the funny part. <laughs> right? Wow. Guess what? If you do this... If you, uh, it's no. the sound of rust, people. That's what you're hearing. Oh, you think that was rusty? <laughs> I'm, I'm operating under all kinds of disabilities today. Yeah, was, dude, I opened this banana the proper way. I found, once I found out this life, I have to say this is a truly life-changing life yeah. hack. No, why don't you describe, would you like to describe for people or shall I describe for people what it means to open a banana in the manner of a chimpanzee? Well, I mean, I was going to say... Because everyone's opening it at the wrong end, basically. Most people are. Yeah, you get, you grab up near the, the top where it's connected to the... What are these called? So you'd say Joe, like, I'm not a plant biologist. You see, I don't know what it's called either, but I would just say this, the, ste- the thing that looks more like a stem... Right. Of course, it's not a stem, is it? Whatever. It's, a, it's a thing that looks more like a stem. The it's probably thin, called like a stevon or something like that, or a stavia. Who knows what it's called? Right. Um, I saw the corpse flower in D.C., by the way. It's called the javelin. I saw the corpse flower in D.C. Yeah, I saw yeah. a picture of that. You've got to um, tell us about that. This is the javelin. So most people take the javelin and they try to, you know. Bend and, it and yeah, they end up taking some of the top off. like and, ripping at the banana like an animal. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, Ironic. actually uh, quite <laughs> unlike an animal. <laughs> no, well, like, a, like an animal. Like the We're human animals, animal. Yeah. Right, like homo sapiens, right. But animals familiar with bananas, like chimps, they open it from the bottom, apparently. Right. What we would think of as the bottom. Right. Be- because all you need to do to do that is you just pinch it. You just pinch the protuberance. And again, this is not a <laughs> metaphor. You just pinch the black protuberance at the bottom, at what we would think of as the bottom of the banana. And it opens right up. And it doesn't mangle the bananas and rip it apart. It's just I kind of get a fingernail in there or something. I don't works know. It beautifully. It opens up very easily it. from the you bottom. You just go yeah. poop. Yeah. And, you know, you just squeeze the protuberance. Then you've got banana access. And not only that, the javelin is now at the end where you've got more to hold on to. Yeah, like it's like you're holding like a push-up right. from the ice cream truck. Yeah, or some kind of popsicle of some yeah. nature. A potassium popsicle, you could think of it as. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm eating a little bit. I got a little beverage here. Yep. We're obviously rusty. You know, last time, well, you know, when we, when we signed off for August... We didn't mean to take a, a break that long, by the way. We didn't we mean s- to have a 10-week hiatus, that's true. <laughs> we, we, we signed <laughs> off, and, 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 and we did this kind of weird show last time. We said, don't worry, you know, if you're, we'll be back with, like, regular oral argument. We're right. going to come back, and we're going to do it regular. Yeah, right? which we sort of are doing. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I said sort of, dude. As I sit here popping banana in my mouth, I've got this sty thing in my eye. It happened just before you came over. Yeah. So you got some kind of inf- inflammation. I just, yeah, this is like. It's not in your eye. It's really it's below like, your eye. It just feels like the universe is saying, maybe not today, guys. Yeah, well. Maybe not today. I've. But we, but we, we promised we'd get back to it. I feel like, you know, our, our fan is clamoring for us to release another episode. That's true. <laughs> Undoubtedly he or she is, whoever that person may be. Uh, so what are we going to do? Uh, well, do we have any ketchup? Do we have any 
any well, I know what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about a paper that you wrote. Oh. <laughs> uh, we we're not we we we're not going to do any kind of mailbaggy twittery thing. We're going to let that be for a while, right? Cuz well, we that yeah. was what we just did. Yeah, we just did that. I think. So we need to let that be. We could catch up on the eclipse, what we did, but I feel like everyone's done that by now. Yeah, what about the corpse flower? Oh, that was cool. I I was I was in DC. So I was I was taking my son to college. Yeah. And we have friends near where his college is who live in D.C. And so okay. we, we got to stay with them for a little bit, uh, which is great, obviously, to stay with good friends. Wonderful. And one of the things that we did was to monitor the live stream of the corpse flower in in the National um, – is it not the National Arboretum? Is it the National – the National uh, – boy, I didn't know it's going to be quizzed on this. botanical garden? I, yeah, or? the National Botanical Garden. Okay. And – uh, right near the right Capitol, near the Capitol Right next to the Capitol. Yeah. And lovely facility. And so this, this, uh, you know, this large Jurassic looking thing. It's quite tall, isn't it? When that flower oh, blooms, yeah. it's quite, it's quite large. Oh, it, this was like eight feet tall. It was the biggest one they'd ever had or had in, in that particular place. Wow. Right? And, and so it's this Jurassic looking thing. And apparently like every 18 months or so, it will, it will emerge from this, like this kind of rooty ball thing in the ground mm. and it will shoot up a, uh, some kind of stem and then from that stem will emerge a leaf. Now, this leaf is actually, uh, it looks like a bunch of, it looks like a regular tree. It looks like a bunch of leaves. But if you look carefully, you see that all the, the leafy parts are connected. It's one big leaf. Mm. Right? And I guess that generates some energy, you know, and then, it, and then it goes back down. Every seven or eight years, though, a, a, a flower comes out. Mm. And it shoots up this stamen-looking thing. And that's what we were looking at. We, it had shot up this stamen. So we knew, the, phallic, we okay. knew the corpse flower was going to emerge. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, I think, I, I, I think I, any person would say, wow, that the adjective phallic could apply to that. I, I guess. I don't know. You were there. I was there, but I've like seen the, pictures. Yeah, but the Washington Monument's like really close. Fair so enough. there's like, you know, it's I like, didn't say it was the think, only phallus. <laughs> yeah, just say, you know, if you're saturated in it, you don't really think about it. So yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, Boy, this is a good one today, isn't it, Joe? So, and, and so we're sitting there waiting because it's on YouTube. They've got this live stream, right? And everybody's waiting. When is the, when is the corpse flower going to open? And we were going back to look at other corpse flower openings on YouTube, you know, because you can kind of scrub through and see roughly like how long does it take? Like once uh, you start I to see, see the, the 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 kind of the the petals, they're not really petals. It may you not can't really, really see this in real time. Can you? Did I say I was not a plant biologist? I think I did say you that. Did. So. Yeah. so we were trying to figure out, like, once you start to see the hint of opening, how long until it opens? Because mm. it, you know, it's got this kind of red, like, rotten meat looking inside. Okay. And, and of course, it's called corpse flower because it a stink emerges from right, it. Like right, it, right, right. And it can be overpowering and it can be not so overpowering. It kind of depends. It's got this, these uh, chemical reactions on the inside that kind of heat things up oh. on the inside of the flower. And this big stamen acts like a chimney. And it just uh, and and from this and so this uh, the stench kind of emerges from wow. this airflow. It's it's really really quite cool. And yeah, and right as we were going to go to dinner, um, a dinner that we couldn't reschedule. That's when we saw the first hint. You could kind of by scrubbing back over the past two hours, you know, because it, it's all in a live stream. You can go backwards about two hours. Okay. On thing. You could just make out that there was the slightest hint of a movement, and hmm. we knew that you know while we were at dinner, that's when it was going to open fully. And indeed, so, that happened. So how long does it take to, from from the time it starts to open, how long does it take to open? I'd say probably like, uh, probably about four hours, three, and, four hours. And how long does it stay at that peak phenomenon? 
until it kind of, yeah, the petals kind of, it kind of, the stamen thing falls over and the leaves fall. This is not where people should come, though, for corpse flower information. Should I just say? <laughs> I understand that, but you're trying to relate a personal I, yeah, experience. Yeah, a personal experience. Because yeah. you actually went, and you, you keep talking about YouTube. You actually went to see it. Oh, yeah, yeah, after it opened. The next the next morning we were there. So it was still there to be seen the next oh, yeah. morning, even though at dinner the previous yeah. night is when you had seen it, uh, that it was going to be opening. I think we we looked that up to figure out, like, how long would this thing be open? How long could we go there and smell the stench? Uh, and it seemed like it was between 12 and 48 hours. Like some, some places said like oh. up to 24, some said 24 to 48. It wasn't so clear to me. So it's not like an hour. No. No, that would be cool though, wouldn't it? Well, I didn't know what it was. So that, I mean, that would be. That'd be a super fast thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you went. I did. Yeah. And was it. Uh, it ripe? smelled. It did smell, but it was not. Uh, you know, we talked to the docents there and everything, so it was not in its overpowering phase. Like there will be waves of, you know, oh. and I don't know if this is has to do with, you know, the the uh, chemistry on the inside of the plant and reactions occurring at different times, or if it's timed periodically. So maybe later that day it might have gotten more intense. Earlier that day it was, and later that it day it was more intense. Oh yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So much so that I guess the workers there are like, I don't know if I can stay in here. That sort of thing. Wow, that Apparently. bad. Yeah, one 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 worker told us that. Yeah. So, when we were there, though, you could smell it. It just wasn't overpowering. Okay. A little bit like the eclipse view that I had, which was amazing. It was in totality, but it was obscured by clouds, so mm-hmm. I did not actually see the corona. Right. But I did see a three hundred sixty degree sunset. I was on a hilltop. It was amazing. The hairs on your all over your body they stand on end. You're like mm. something very strange is happening. Wow. I cannot explain it, and you just want to cry out. Hmm. Now, what did that a shroud like? of darkness falls over you within, you know, within seconds. All of a sudden it's, you know, at one point it's like, boy, the light's kind of weird. And then, shoom, you know, mm-hmm. this shroud of darkness kind of falls. And and that is a, a, an otherworldly experience. So I feel like I got that with the corpse flower too. Mm. You know, this is an unusual experience. But, but it was I, attenuated a little yeah, bit. Yeah, attenuated a little bit. Like okay. maybe you can think of it like we left a little bit for next time. Okay. I, I'm up for another corpse flower viewing and smelling. And I'm definitely up for another eclipse. But you have to go, you say it's only once every seven or eight years or something for any given flower. Right. So you'd have to travel to go, like, let's say you wanted to see one next year. You'd have to go find someone that well, had one next year that was in its seventh. Well, the the, the National Botanical um, uh, Garden has multiple of these. They kind of bring them to the main, oh. uh, to, to, to the main exhibition space there by the Capitol. When they're ready. When to they're ready. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. Only, only the best in that building, right? They right, bring stuff course. in when it's, it's ready. It's the cream of the crop, as yeah. it were. I thought you were going to talk about eclipses, because the other thing my friend and I did, we were looking at all kinds of things about eclipses and their cycle. You know, eclipse cycles are really strange, because there's a certain periodicity to it, but it's, it's, it's the interaction of several variables yes. that are on different cycles that right. make it, you know, that it's not it like strange. just every year or every six years or every, it's not that simple. No, but there are long, 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 long cycles. Um, and we kind of went through this. It's really mind bending. Upshot is that um, we should try to make the 2019 eclipse down in South America. Okay. Four and a half minutes of totality of the center line. Whoa. Yeah. Where? Well, I couldn't quite tell that. Uh, I don't know if you. Have... <laughs> it's <laughs> it, going to be hard to well, plan. It may be that you got to be on a boat for this one, Joe. Oh. Uh, so, mm-hmm. isn't and, there and one you missed this one, so you got to... Isn't there one in the 2020s here in the U.S.? Yeah, no guarantee I'll be alive, though. Well, I, 20, I sh- 2024. I should say that is true with respect to 2019. That's M- true with respect to tomorrow. Much more likely I'll be alive in 2019 than 2024. Okay. Well, 
Yeah, I don't know. Sure. Much more, but yeah. but more likely. You got to admit more likely. Mm, not sure. Um, complex variables, dude. Complex variables. I, I I have a hard time imagining that it would be less likely I'd be alive in, like, in 2019 than in 2024. I'm just, I think, I, I, I'm thinking of the way time works. I could pitch you a story that I'm not going to bore you with now, but mm. I think I could make it work. Did you see that movie Predestination? Is that with the one Ethan where... Hawk? Is that what? With Ethan Hawke? Yeah, where he's like... No, don't, don't no say spoilers. No, no spoilers. Know, you don't like spoilers. No. That's a really, really good really movie. Really good movie. And you got to admit, like, you don't want to spoil that one at all. Say no more other than... No, but I think it. a person who's going to see it is kind of is kind of in on it. Like, yeah, I think... I saw it without knowing anything about it. Really? Oh, yeah. What motivated yeah. you to see it? Uh, it was like it showed up... I mean, it was when it was first showed up on, like... Um, like iTunes know, Where or I can rent it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we saw it. It was like... I was blown away. It's it based really on good. a short story, if I remember correctly. Is it like Philip Dick or something I, like I that? I think it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, we sure are fulfilling our promise to get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I need to take a sip of this beverage. Okay. Enjoy. Um, okay. Should we... I like the some, annotations here. Should I play I think, some interlude music here? I think, no, I think you can just go ahead I and have like a I feel like after a hiatus like this, it's like, you know what this is? This is the first episode of season two of Oral Argument. Mmm... It's really not though. <laughs> Why not? Because we don't have a guest. We need to. We're not going to be back next oh, week. Oh no 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 no! Do you remember how we started season one? I don't. This was in. Um, I was going to say 1993. <laughs> God help us. It was 20, 2013 December. Yeah. Right. So it ended in the three. I was thinking 1993, probably because of Doctor Disrespect. I'm not sure, but uh, 2013. We didn't start with a guest. We started with episode zero. Yes, that's And I true. asked you, Joe, who's your hero? What did you I say? I don't even remember. Some garbage, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? So, see, this is the beginning of season two. This is episode zero of season two. Oh, nice. But we're not back next week. We have, we have another week problem. Well, we'll see. We might do something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I don't think so. I when, don't think it's When you work. were a kid, do you remember, is, is, they have Saturday morning cartoons when you were a kid. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sure. Do you remember before the start of the new season... There'd be this special show previewing the new cartoons that would come out that year. I don't remember that. Oh, so there boy. was sort of like a cartoon upfronts yeah. or something. Yeah, oh. it was like, you know, get ready, kids. Wow. Get ready, kids. And it was like in primetime or something Have like that. Have another bowl of cereal. <laughs> Sugar cereal. <laughs> right. Sugar and wheat. Sugar and wheat. That's what I grew up on. Gotta love it. Um what other preliminary stuff do we have? So what I think what you're conveying to people is that whatever they do, they should definitely not read my paper. No, 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 no. I, I don't mean to say that, that the content is going to be the same as that episode zero. It's just that this is not, you, you were saying this is not like other episodes because we don't have a guest. It's not, you know, last time we promised that when we came back, we'd have a guest. We'd be, you know, it'd be, it'd be like regular again, right? Yeah. And, well, I, I don't and know that we promised that, a guest, but yeah, we promised regular order. Yeah, we should never promise anything. I think I that's agree. step one. I agree. Um, and anyone who believes any of our promises is a fool, <laughs> including you and me. <laughs> uh, uh, a lot's happened, though, in August. Like what? Uh, well, um, yeah, wh- how do you even count these days? It's like know. every day. I know. Every day. It's cray um, cray. Bring in the cray cray. But um, obviously, best wishes to our listeners in South Texas and in Houston. So that's one big piece of news, right? Uh, mm, Hurricane Harvey. True. And now we're 
staring down the barrel of Hurricane Irma. Who knows what's going to happen yeah, with that? I, I, this may be released at around the time this is hitting land somewhere. Right. Uh, so it's and hitting my, land somewhere my right understanding now. Actually, is that but, uh, there may actually be another tropical storm forming behind it. Yeah, there is one. Yeah. So we're in for a, yeah, a pretty bad season. Jose would seem. Jose, a version of my own name. Oh, Joseph. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. We, I feel like we. So, do you have any other preliminary stuff? What you? What preliminary stuff should I, just, I have? You feel like it's something I should have planned? Something? I don't know. Or? No, no. I'm. I, I'm not. I, I. I just feel like we should do like a regular podcast. Like we should be talking about stuff. Like this is a conversational podcast. Yes. We are like the stereotypical two dudes talking about stuff podcast. <laughs> And, and there's all this stuff as this happened. And, and, and to tell you the truth, maybe it's because of this eye thing. Maybe it's because of the beverage. I can't remember a darn thing right now. Mm. I mean, that's I know a, there's lots of craziness out of the White House. That's I know a problem. The, um, I can't remember anything. Uh, we're, we're now looking at the announcement about the discontinuation of the DACA program mm-hmm. and punting it over to Congress. And, Deferred action for childhood arrivals. Right. I think I We had think a great episode it, with Jason Cade about that. I think calling it DACA is a bad idea because I think it's it's sort of easy to forget what, what it is we're talking about. I think calling it childhood arrivals mm-hmm. um, is like nice, descriptive, appropriate reminder that that's what we're talking about. Do you know people on we're the – talking about people yeah. who arrived yeah, yeah, when they were little kids. Right. Uh, who have known no other country than this one, who may not speak another language. They might be English speakers only. They probably have not been to the country of which they might be a citizen because they would find it difficult to get back and their parents probably knew that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, the likelihood that someone's visited the country of which they're a citizen is like, it's more likely that someone who isn't them visited than that they themselves visited. This is all craziness. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I totally agree. Uh, I was just going to say though that the, in terms of the nomenclature, right? I mean, people who stand up for immigrants and immigrants' rights, you don't normally associate like these kinds of social justice movements with the with the I would say the absolute best branding. It does seem like the uh, I don't want to say the other side. I, I, I'm going to devolve into this two sides kind of thing because there really aren't two. There are a lot of people who are thinking this is really bad, right? So sure, um, but uh, um, I'm thinking of like the Frank Luntz like death tax, you know, branding. Right. On on the other side of these kinds of issues has always been really good, mm-hmm. but calling them dreamers, yeah, that's pretty. Was, that was pretty was savvy. a hugely like it's it just it changes things, doesn't it? I mean, it's weird how naming things can can change them. Like because the discussion now is like, what are we going to do about the dreamers? Right, right. That's well, you just said it. What are you going to do? You know. You just said it. Like, how can you? Right. How can you not have sympathy for the dreamer? It's it, so totally inconsequential in a way, right? Because it doesn't matter what you call them. These are kids who would suffer if they're banished yes. from the United States. And, and, and the naming, but, the powerful, uh, the powerful verbal formulation that you know, like, do you? <laughs> even if you don't know much about the policy, right? Being the person who says the sentence, "Let's expel the dreamers." It's like, <laughs> mm, yeah, oops. that's like that doesn't sound good. Yeah, that's how you know who the bad guy was in a movie about this, right? <laughs> In a movie about anything yeah. where someone was called a dreamer. They're the good guys. Even if you called a bunch of someone's whatever. Gonna, now, someone's going to write in with some like movie from the 1960s or something that involves hallucinogenic drugs where there's a group called the dreamers and they're a bunch of terrorists. I get that. I, there are probably movies like that. But in an ordinary movie. Right. Right. 
if a group is called the Dreamers and someone is trying to go after the Dreamers, that person is probably the bad guy. Right. Reminds me of that John Lennon song, too. The, the bad guy? <laughs> <laughs> no, the word dreamer. Yeah. You Maybe, might say I'm a dreamer. Yeah, but he, but I'm not the only one. Maybe he was. Who knows? Hmm. So I have this dreadful paper. We're going to talk about the singer yeah. now. Do you want to get to it? Well, I feel like if we don't, it's embarrassing because <laughs> it's because you're, you're basically conveying to people that it's not that they really shouldn't look at it. No, I just I feel like we haven't done this in a long time, and I want. Well, it's not going to get any easier by <laughs> by dithering around. So, do you have something you want to say about it or not? Well, so I read it. Good Lord. (laughs) There are two ways I could play this. There are two ways I could play this. First of all, it's a very interesting paper and the beginning of what I think is an interesting interesting, uh, project. That's how I see it. I see it as the first part of a multi-part thing. And so so one way I could play it is like you're like any other guest, right? And another way I could play it is uh, you're my co-host who I enjoy needling. Yeah. Let's not do that. (laughs) I know which one listeners would prefer, I think. Which one would they prefer? I think they would prefer um, not one-way needling. They prefer a little bit of pugilism, I think. Sure. That, well, yes. I, 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 Undoubtedly, they would like some jocularity, <laughs> right, so, to leaven the serious conversation. So we'll try to provide – uh, we'll try to provide some laughs along the way, or you can just needle me, and I'll just laugh, and we'll be done. It'll be, that'll probably go faster. Whatever you want. So it's, it's uh, very right. it's it's not uh, it's not a conventional it's not the conventional thing you would see in a law review. I don't think. So you are um, uh, interested in this recent upsurge in patent cases that the United States Supreme Court has decided. That is true, and you are. Looking at like, you know, it almost is is like you're trying to figure out like what is the meaning of this? What's going on? And, and so this is a very particular way of looking at these new cases though where you're looking at like what is the network of citations uh, of these – who are they citing? Who's citing them? And you're looking at this network trying to figure out, OK, what are the influential cases? And it looks like like down the road maybe that will tell you something about semantics, right? So what you've done, it's very – you know, it's empirical. So you've gotten all these cases together. All the uh, recent IP cases together, not just the patent cases together. That's true. Um, although patent cases dominate the group, so there's seventy two in number. Correct. There's seventy. I know they're closer to your heart, Joe. But they also. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, well, they yeah they dominate the group in a number of ways. But the 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 of the seventy two uh, IP cases from October nineteen ninety four Supreme Court term forward, seventy two of those I think forty six are patent cases. Mm-hmm. Fairly understood. Now, I, I, we got to say, just uh, just to get this out of the way so we don't have to say it again, if we adopted my under, my view of patent law, how many cases would there be? <laughs> well, there's an installed base of patent rights. So presumably... Oh, I take, I'd get rid of all those. You'd get rid of all yeah, those. So you wanna, those. you'll pay the Fifth Amendment uh, surcharge. No. no, I'd also have another ruling that you don't get any compensation. Oh, so there's no compensation. No. Okay, no. interesting. So yeah. zero. Great. There'd be one case, I guess. About that. <laughs> okay, so th- that out of the way. Yep. Maybe that's my only zinger, um, which is not really a zinger because it doesn't criticize you at all. But uh, yeah. So there, you said, all right. So how, do, how would you frame this? Like, what what is your mission in this article? I think you started out in the right place, which is there. There seems to be this upsurge of of patent cases. Uh, at a time when, frankly, the court is hearing fewer cases overall. 
and uh, the to give a, a sense of the upsurge, and this is before you get to the what you could do to try to explain why it's happening and what it might mean. Uh, so if you look at, for example, the f- five-year rolling average of the number of patent cases per term, mm-hmm. right, um, that is now at f- four. Mm-hmm. The five-year roll, the current five-year rolling average of Supreme Court cases, uh, Supreme Court patent cases per term, is at four. At, uh, out of how, about how many merits cases do they hear? Is it like seventy something yeah, that they decide? So right. it used to be up near one hundred and fifty, and correct over time, in the mid eighties, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, and it's yeah. fallen quite dramatically. Um, and that number four of the rolling five-year average is at, at a. It hasn't been at that level since the nineteen forties. Mm-hmm. So the. And it's really picked up quite a bit even since 2008. Okay. Can I stop you there just to ask you? So in the 1940s when there were that many cases, was there a new patent statute? What was going on in the – or was it just post-war? Yeah. The New Patent Act was uh, uh, the most recent uh, sort of very big codification was 1952. Mm -hmm. Uh, So working through some of the issues of the 52 Act happened in the uh, sort of late 50s and and in the 60s. -hmm. And at a time when, again, the court was only hearing two or three uh, per term. Uh, Lots of possible explanations uh, for this. Uh, uh, the, The real sort of banner period for someone who would want the Supreme Court to hear patent cases, and many people wouldn't want them to, but but um, uh, was before 1890, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a period when it, these were appeals as of right. Mm-hmm. 1890, Congress passes what's known as the Evarts Act, which creates the Circuit Courts of Appeal, and it also makes the Supreme Court's review discretionary in lots of areas, including patent cases. So uh, you have to, for the most part, to hear a patent case, they've got a grant review as opposed to taking appeal as a right. Uh, and and the number just falls through the floor. Uh, and as it does with many other areas of right. law, right? Yeah. Um, although it's interesting that, that patent law is, at this point uh, in the 1890s, I mean, Everett's Act is passed in 1891. Patent law is exclusively federal and, and, and really has been from the get-go. That is part of why it was a big part of the court's docket at, at, the, at some points in time in mm-hmm. the 1800s. Uh, this is not a whole lot they were doing, frankly, um, in in many ways compared to today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this this uh, the number kind of defaults very close to uh, actually in the from 1982 till about 1994 uh, when this stuff starts to gather steam and, and put us into the period we're in now. Uh, the court was hearing maybe one patent case every other year or so. Right. Mm-hmm. So it dropped to like 0.5, right? Quite low. Uh, and then in 1994, as John Duffy and other people have pointed out, it, things start to turn, right? And, we're, and so we're in this period. So you said, where, you know, how would you frame it? Well, here's, here's the thing that's happening. Like, oh, that seems odd, right? Why the big interest level? And if you think about it that a few different ways, you could say, oh, I want to try to explain it by talking about the doctrinal content of the cases and see what the court is saying about why it's doing what it's doing. That's one way to look at it, right? Working on another project that tries to do that and that one I've been working on for a while and it's I just can't seem to make any progress on it. But anyway, so that's one way. So another way to do it would be say, well, what, what, other, what other ways could you look at sort of forms of evidence that would suggest to you what might be occurring, right? So I think one way to be quite external, to use the external internal point of view notion, 
would be, you know, look at some sort of sociological thing about, you know, what, investments in innovation and a value in the country that's wrapped up in IP as opposed to RP or whatever. And what, what's RP meaning real property, correct. right? Um, try to tell some story about the the sort of broader economic influences on what issues are important to people and why mm-hmm. and how that might affect the court's choices about what it's doing and that kind of stuff. Certainly seems reasonable. Sure. I um, mean, it's a com- the computer age is when the number of patent cases shoot up, right? Well, computer age. The internet age, I guess. Um, yeah. I'm, I think the computer age is sort of like depending on – do you mean personal computers? That's the well, no, 80s. No, I mean, yeah. I, you know, if, even, even if you just mean personal computers, right, you would expect that the, that the Supreme Court cases litigating fights about – innovation in the computer age would lag the dawn of the indeed by 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 about a decade and that seems to be about right like if you think of like 1984 it's when the mac comes out it's when certain uh pcs become you know pc clones become really and it starts you get that so maybe you know you know netscape navigator is around 94 and or 95 and so um yeah but it's it, it is interesting i don't know whether you would predict if if that's your explanation from that more external point of view, would you what would your prediction be about you know would copyright cases also be on the upsurge uh, because there's you know after all there's the new copyright act in 1976 mm-hmm. and software is covered uh, by copyrights and unfortunately so, yeah. you know <laughs> so why aren't there a bunch of because it turns out. And that, in the internet age, there's a bunch of new expression. There's a lot more expression, than right? That. And yeah. so, we, but but of course, the same data that that show that the rolling average of patent cases uh, is now at four per term. Um, copyright and trademark aren't 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 have not enjoyed the same kind of upsurge. So it really does seem to be patents in particular. Now, does right? anybody have data on the number of copyright cases in the courts of appeals where there is appeal as of right? So we can kind of see, like, is it just the court saying, yeah, there's a huge like. You know, the, the, this is a big social issue in the sense that lots of people are fighting about right. these things. But may, but yeah, I'm sure there are. I mean, yeah. I don't. I haven't looked at those papers or or looked at. I mean, you could you can just go on the Federal Judicial Center website or the Administrative Office of the Courts website and see data about um, in various ca- categories of cases, mm-hmm. right? And look at the courts of appeals, and I'm sure there's information there that that would try to identify at least in a rough sense, right? Copyright cases, trademark cases. I mean, it's it's also interesting this the the fact that there is this upsurge in patent cases, which is not equaled by an upsurge or tracked by an upsurge in copyright or trademark, is that from a doctrinal point of view, you would actually predict the reverse, in as much as copyright and trademark cases can there can be circuit splits, uh, and there can't be in patent law mm-hmm. uh, because there's just one now one national court of appeals for patent cases. So by definition, it has no splits. Uh, unlike copyright, which does. Second Circuit might think one thing, Ninth might think another. Trademark, Seventh might think one thing, Eleventh might think another, right? Um, So even there, it's like, it's sort of not just not what you would expect by the technology point of view. It's not even what you'd expect from the doctrinal sort of circuit split driving Supreme Court review point of view. You do have this interesting social movement going on, right? This, this, I call it like an anti-IP social movement, which begins to gather steam you know, in the 90s, as people are using the, um, as, as internet use becomes widespread. And, you know, it, it, sometime in the 2000s, you know, there's even a This American Life about patent trolls. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, 
So it gradually seeps into the public consciousness that that IP systems have real costs, and so, and maybe Definitely. for the first time, like ordinary people are bumping up against IP costs in a way that maybe ordinary people didn't before. Yeah, I think that's uh, you're and, right. And the, maybe the judges are seeing that. You know, maybe, I don't know if the justices are, but maybe judges in general might be seeing. I, I, well, yeah. that's not a good explanation, but um, uh, because well, because you have a very pro patent uh, federal circuit in general, is that right or wrong? That is certainly the perception. I think the perception is uh, f- fair uh, uh, along some dimensions, uh, and certainly the the creation of the federal circuit in 1982 was due in part to the perception that at least in some of the regional circuits, it was very hard to get a fair shake on a patent infringement claim. And therefore, there were some parts of the country where your patent was worth very little, other parts where it was worth more, and that it would be better to have a system where there was a uniform approach, right? Normally, mm-hmm. the way we get uniform approaches in federal law is the Supreme Court does it, right? Yeah, so they, they created like a Supreme Court of patents in a way, right? B- because <laughs> you, you still start your patent suit in a district court, right? Which is why all these people yeah. run to the – which district in Texas is it? There's a certain – Well, until recently, the Eastern District of Texas, because of the way the venue statute had been read. But um, the uh, the District of Delaware has long played an important role, the Northern District of California, the Northern District of Illinois. Um, and I think they will play a greater role now that Texas's wings have been trimmed a bit with this this venue statute. But yeah, that's where you bring your patent infringement litigation. Of course, you're – uh, an appeal from a rejection by the patent office also goes to this same court, the federal circuit. Um, before 1982, that wasn't the case. The rejections in the PTO appeals went mm-hmm. to one place and infringement litigation went all the other places. And then the Supreme Court was there to m- sort of make it uniform. Uh, so so is the federal circuit pro-patent? Yeah. I mean, relative to the pre-federal circuit baseline – Yes. Well, because I the naive story, well, at least the one I have, and I just I'll just label it naive because I'm the one who has it. Right? Is you have a a, a long time pro patent body, or at least which is isn't attuned to the new social movement, right? And at the same time, you have this new social movement growing among people who think that IP costs are getting out of control, and those are getting out of sync, right? Because it's a specialized court, right, which is used to operating in a specialized environment, and now ordinary people are questioning the value of patents. And that, you know, this is a very, I'm painting with very, very broad strokes here. Yep. I'm just wondering if, if there's any truth to this whatsoever, you know, as you, as people began to resent the, the lockup um, qualities of, of a, of a generous IP regime, they're pushing in a way that seeps through public consciousness and the specialized court is out of sync with that. And the Supreme Court now is playing the role of of of, be, of bringing the specialized court into step with uh, the general I, is this is there any truth to that at all I think there I think there could be uh, I think it's interesting to think about the mechanism whereby that occurs mm-hmm. um, and I think it ultimately does have to be expressed doctrinally like what is it about the way the patent act and other principles operate that would let the intermediate court of appeals drift off in one direction and allow the Supreme Court using the same sorts of basic doctrinal and and other policy sort of building blocks, tell a different story, Mm -hmm. right? And pull it back in a different direction. 
Uh, so I think the, the, the sort of the mood music out in the general public about what patents are about and what role they should play and how to grapple with those issues, I think that, yes, that can be out there and it can be affecting the, the sort of the issues that are salient to people. Uh, and I do think ultimately, though, as I say, that has to be translated back into a, yeah. a legal vocabulary. And it's interesting that a lot of the cases that trim the patent sales, if you like, are, are not computer cases. They're, you know, business method patent cases. They're uh, life sciences cases, at least the ones that I'm familiar with. Sure. And, the, and, and, and I think if you ask, you know, who's litigating? Mm-hmm. Like you can say there's this movement out in the public to sort of suggest that patents are problematic in certain ways. But if you ask, well, who's litigating? Like who's actually in the courthouse, right? right. The parties themselves with I think basically one exception, um, which relates to the patentability of some uh, uh, genetics inventions mm-hmm. that were for uh, diagnosing breast cancer. Uh, there you really did have sort of like a public interest style shop on one side of the case yeah. in a way that's unusual actually in patent litigation. And the Supreme Court heard that. And, it did. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was the Myriad case. Mm-hmm. I think I've got that name right. Um, yeah, and it's Myriad Genetics. Yeah. So, you know, who's in court? It's it's really business on business litigation. I mean, it's in, but both sides are typically businesses, right? Fair. Um, and it, now – what about amicus briefs and all the yeah. other stuff that goes with, you know, remember our conversation with Thousand Orr and all the, the amicus yeah. machine and, right? Mm-hmm. So, so people have a way to express the views that would suggest, hey, patents are causing these kinds of problems. And, um, and those views not only were brought to the court, but, but filtered into the opinion. So, you know, you've got a few times the court refers to this very interesting study that the National Academies did in 2003 talking about some real problems with the way the patent system was operating under the federal circuit's umbrella, right? Mm-hmm. That it was getting too aggressive in some ways and not not taking due account of some existing doctrinal things and having negative effects on competition, and right? And so the Federal Trade Commission starts expressing views in the National Academies as a study. And, you know, suddenly there are other sort of national official bodies that are articulating a view that competes with that of the patent office or other sort of more perceived to be more pro-patent actors. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I, this was all a way of saying, how could you begin to try to tell a story about what's happening? Yeah, right? let me just tell, let me just ask one more thing because this gets to your... Because we're the, still the, not at my paper. Yeah, yet. we're still not at your paper, but uh, but it does go to your paper a little bit because it goes to how you're, you know, what, what the value is of counting these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Another possible explanation is, and, and it maybe it relates to this public consciousness explanation, and you're asking what the mechanism is. Maybe it's an individual justice or a couple of justices who, for whom this matters, right? I mean, you're talking about nine people, right? And they need four votes. Right. And I assume there's some amount of accommodation about what people think are interesting cases, or at least, you know, there's some talk, right? Yeah. Um, in 1994, um, when, when did Breyer come on? Was it 94? 94. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um and obviously, he's been a very, I would call him patent skeptical in the opinions that the, in the patent opinions of the court yeah. since that time. I, I mean, IP skeptical. Of course, yeah, generally, of course, yeah, oh. yeah, but but patent in particular. And and um, was it Justice Kennedy who wrote the business methods case? Which one was that? Bilski? Yeah, that was one of them. One although of them. it was the one that was sort of, in a, in a funny way, it was it's the one that's least important because it didn't provide a... Um, 
it didn't provide a general approach to analyzing the issues. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. it, it, it sort of was them stepping back into the water. I feel like you came and talked to my SCOTUS group about that. You know, that, maybe I think that was, it was back in the day, right? Yeah, but maybe, um, but, but it did show a certain skepticism, right? Yeah. I, I, no, yeah. not in this paper, but in the other one that I've been working on, which tries to tell the story from the point of view of the way the justices themselves talk about the issues, so you just suggested, hey, maybe it only takes a small number of the nine people to really ag- to engage in a kind of agenda setting and interest motion that will highlight. So, so here's some stuff that points the other way. Okay, um, which is um, uh, another thing that's atypical about these patent cases uh, is they they are decided with a much higher degree of unanimity mm-hmm. than Supreme Court cases generally. If you and this is data driven, right? So if you look at the same period, ninety four to now, and look at the frequency with which the court decides cases nine zero uh, or close to nine zero versus not, right? Um, the the patent cases are way on one side, hmm. high degree of unanimity. You're right, and the ones that I can think about, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, second thing about them, um, virtually everyone on the court has written more than one of them. Hmm. Uh, and Justice Thomas is the most frequent author, actually, from 94 to now. He wrote Myriad, didn't he? He did. Yeah, it's a very formalistic opinion about um, – yeah, anyway, go ahead, yeah. It, well, yeah, it, and it's it gets got, to the same it, – it's like they're overlapping theories that are getting them to the same patent skeptical place. Fair, yeah, that's, a, I think, a fair summary. Um, so, so that would suggest right, – so, so, so these three things together, right, let's hear more of them. Oh, I haven't gotten the third one. So, so let's hear more of them mm-hmm. from the federal circuit. Um, most of them numerically, like two thirds, come out nine zero or close to nine zero, eight one, something like that, seven two maybe. Right. Uh, we're all writing them. Uh, most of them are reversals. Mm-hmm. That's weird, right? Putting all that together, you can explain nine uh, zero. These are boring, <laughs> right? But right. that doesn't explain granting more of them or reversing a lot. And, and they right? reverse at a great – like most Supreme they're Court reversing cases at a higher reverse. rate. They're reversing, no, they're at, reversing a higher, at a higher yeah, rate. Yeah, right, right, right. I just want to make clear. The unanimity is yeah. at a higher rate. The reversals are at a higher rate. The grant rate is at a place that hasn't been in decades, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So this is – and they're all doing it. So it's not just one or two people. And in this public consciousness explanation, do you give law profs any credit? Uh, I'm actually. There's been a high. There's been you know heavily like ant. You know, like we uh, need to rethink this area. Yeah, I'm not actually. Props. I'm not actually making a pu- the public consciousness argument you made in that paper. I'm trying to get you to make it. I guess. Okay. What I'm saying. Um, <laughs> and so yeah, I would say sure. I mean, if we look at the if you, if you if you looked at the amicus brief filings mm-hmm. right at the petition stage, um, y- you could see that. Um, John Duffy has made the argument that that a big part of at least the sort of 94 to maybe halfway or maybe more than that um, has been the increased role of the solicitor general that the court has used a CBSG procedure call for the views of the solicitor general at CBSG, right? The Supreme court can say, Oh, we're not sure if we want to grant yet. Let's ask the SG to opine. Right. Um, and, and that they do that. It seems more often in patent cases. Uh, and hmm. so, and that's because there aren't splits like there are for copyright. I always trademark. thought that was because, you know, the patent case, they like, we need to take this because it feels like things are kind of out of control. 
but then they get these cases and they're like, help. Somebody please. Somebody <laughs> Wait, well, that's at the merit stage, right? So oftentimes yeah. the U.S. will also file a brief, an amicus brief at the merit stage um, because, look, the, 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 the U.S. has a lot of interests in the patent system even if they're not a party. So you've got the patent office is sort of trying to run a system that it's been told by Congress to do. Um, the United States is often a patent infringement defendant. Right. There's a uh, 28 U.S.C. 1498, I guess, is the patent infringement statute for for the United States. Yeah, I'd repeal that one right away. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And there's a there's a a, 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 I can't remember now if it's called federal programs or but there's a part of the civil division in the Justice Department that exists to like defend patent infringement allegations. They're tried at the Court of Federal Claims. uh, And uh, so so, you know, it's. It's defending a lot. It's giving them out at a different part of the government. So it's got a lot. It's got a, the antitrust division often has a point of view that it wants to suggest with respect to IP rights, so, just so the Federal Trade Commission. So you use a lot of things. The SG can kind of corral and do interagency consultation and try to come up with some approach to explain to the court some comment to make to the court about an important issue in a patent case, even if the United States is not a party. Right. So, um, yeah, lots of interesting stuff going on. All right. But so so how does the the citation network that you track here and let me so, describe what you do like how does what how does this answer the question what question is it answering? I'm getting there. Okay. So the so <laughs> that I, that you, side don't me just for the listeners. That side and I believe me I think I know this by now. I don't think that was a frustration side. I think that was a thinking side. It was a self frustration side, also, they, and those sound like. But it wasn't the one. It wasn't like one of the ones where you're frustrated with me. Not at all. Yeah, that because I I know those. I just want to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it came out over the audio that that was a oh, okay. All right, let's think about how yeah, to do this. Good side. clarification. Yeah, no, I want to make sure this because yeah. we don't have a separate track. Like, there's not like a separate, you know, you, you, like a like a director's commentary or some other track right, where you could exactly. hear all this explained. Right. So, and I'm also not able to administer shocks to you. <laughs> um, in some way, which would also, I think, pr- produce a sort of signal to, to you, you meaning me, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so if you're trying to explain this interesting phenomenon, right? I've already mentioned two ways you could do it. You could you could sort of look at what the court is doing in the way that it talks about what it is doing. You could look at what the court is doing by looking at a bunch of things that are not that, right? So again, the the innovation stuff, the investment stuff, economic indicators, you could try to incorporate these other factors, sort of things going on in the air, sort of social movement related and other things that that express a point of view about patent law, but don't get into the nitty gritty of the doctrinal stuff, Mm -hmm. because that's more like the first box, right? And I guess another question you could say sort of somewhere in between the two is – um, okay, let's not look at it, the nitty-gritty, fine-grained detail of, of the doctrine as they're articulating it. Let's think about the production of cases, and there's this, turns out there's this tradition of citation studies and citation network studies. Let's think of it as the, the court is simply engaged in a process of producing a stock of knowledge. And it's a stock of knowledge that gets used by people who are trying to live within the framework that this system creates. And so they're just regularly engaged in to some degree producing a new bit of stuff in this stock of knowledge of how this legal thing is supposed to operate. Uh, and and look at that pattern and just try to begin not by saying, okay, I'm going to f- 
I'm going to, I've got an explanation. I want to go see if I can find evidence for it. Instead, it's saying what bubbles up within it itself, if you just look at the regularities in what, what they are citing. Now, the, the one thing it would help you do in terms of this relationship between the Supreme Court and the Federal Circuit is you could say, is the Supreme Court treating the Federal Circuit as some special source for patent law understanding? Now, the reversal suggests the answer to that is no. I already mentioned that high yeah. rate of reversal. Okay, That at a very top level, that suggests that's probably not the answer. Right, it's probably not what you would see if you went and looked at what the Supreme Court do. Probably, was doing, but I can imagine talking. I can imagine a contrary story. But you're about to tell me that there's another way to figure that out. Well, right, and even further, way to think about it is okay. Like, so that should show up in citations, right? Is the Supreme Court in its patent cases is looking to the Federal Circuit as an important source of substantive patent law understanding or patent law principles? Then. That should show up in the way the court cites stuff, right? They might say cite the same important Federal Circuit case several times as, as standing for a principle. And, right. and so, so if, for example, the Supreme Court thought of the Federal Circuit as a store of patent knowledge and authority, which sometimes they, you know, we need to change course, then you might see them take cases mainly to reverse – but nonetheless, cite in such a way that established that right. the authority of the Federal Circuit over most questions. But that's not what you find. No, it? not yeah. at all. Um, and, and just, but just to 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 sort of sharpen the prediction, um, because as as you as you said some time ago, right? Federal Circuit's different, right? The, the regional circuits aren't like this. There's this 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 court we created in 1982 that supposed to have a special role in patent law. Why it exists? Um, so what do you see? Well, if you take the Supreme Court's IP cases, patent copyright trademark from 1994 to now, basically, and you say, all right, what are they citing? Well, it'd be nice to have some set of understandings before you see what you see so that you have some appreciation for what the literature says about how these things typically work. Um, and what that and th the paper ex goes through these things. Uh, in part to learn how to do it well and in part to explain what you might expect. And This background on this process was fascinating. The, hmm? It was fascinating to read the background on this process, the the emergence of the literature on counting citations and patterns. I and, found it interesting too. And the, the uh, so, so it turns out uh, Supreme Courts, state Supreme Courts and the federal Supreme Court, and I frankly think the courts of appeals are this way too, right, when they cite their own stuff. But, but there's less information about that. So just stick with what the studies seem to establish quite clearly and, and several of them uh, it, it, since – several of them since the 1970s. Um, uh, Supreme courts do the following if you look at what they cite as case authority. Focus on cases, right? not statutes, not treatises, but cases. Uh, they cite their own stuff more than anybody else. By quite a measure, right? They cite recent things much more often than more distantly past things. Um, and those two findings about what court... What and this is just about what do. they cite, not cite as authority. You threw in that phrase as authority. This is just counting citations because obviously the lower courts are not authority for the, for the Supreme Court at the state level or the federal level. Right. But see, and the one thing that's interesting about this literature is, is, is 
trying to describe accurately and think about the different ways to characterize it. So, um, which is why you open with this Posner quote. Yeah, it's influence is the important word, right? So, so it is true that um, a, in a Supreme Court antitrust case where they're reviewing, um, let's say it's a Federal Trade Commission ruling that went to a regional circuit that's now at the Supreme Court. Uh, they might cite, and it could be the majority, it could be the dissent. All of this is the judges explaining what they think and why, right? So they might cite some Seventh Circuit case by Judge Posner at some point. They might cite Learned Hand in the Alcoa case from the 1940s. They, you know, they could cite all kinds of things, right, that aren't other Supreme Court cases. Why would they do that? They don't have to cite anything they don't want to. They're totally in charge of what they cite. Um well, because they're trying to communicate what they think is a good, sound explanation for what they are doing. And and they think in that moment that authoring justice, and it apparently wasn't talked out of it by anyone else, <laughs> right, thinks this is a way to properly record the influences they want the everyone in the public to see as the influences on what they do. So they can cite uh, circuit court cases if they want to, and they do. They just don't do it very often. Mm-hmm. Now, they can cite, you know, if if they want to cite Marbury versus Madison, they can. And indeed, in these IP cases, they did. Um, I think three times. Uh, so, you know, they get to decide that, right? That's up to them. And if you just look at what Supreme Courts do, it turns out they cite themselves more than anybody else. They cite new things much more often than old things. And the third thing that I was blanking on before that I've now remembered um, is, as is true of scholarly literatures generally, um, it's a few of the items get most of the citations. Most of the items get almost none. Right. Right. Um, It'd be interesting to study that dynamically as well, because I bet one, you know, once these points start to cluster Yes. It accelerates the rate of citation to it. Just, you know, yeah, that is bandwagon true. kind of effect. That's certainly true in the citation, in the scholarly literature citation studies. That's, right. That's been documented. Um, where where so the authorities are a kind of jargon in a way, right? The, the authorities become a part of the jargon. Like, you know, you can talk about the so-and-so studies, just part of our language. Yeah. And that attracts additional citations. Correct. So, it's yeah. the it's sort of a rich get richer phenomenon for sure. Yeah. Um, so... So I, I observed that, uh, you know, a few items will get most of the citations. Most of the items will get none. It's also true the in reverse, right? A few of the cases will cite an enormous number of other things. Most cases, though, only cite a few things. So it's both on the inward and the outward direction where you get this disparity. Mm-hmm. A few are doing most of the stuff. Most are doing very little of the stuff. Okay. Um, and... What do you see when you look at the Supreme Court's IP cases? You see that. You see all three of those things. They cite themselves more often than anybody else. They cite recent more often than old. And they cite a few cases a lot and most cases not much. So that's not surprising. It's just like they're like every other case, right? And they do. And that holds with respect to patent, copyright, and trademark. One difference in patent is that they skew older. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quite a bit older, actually. Um. The, the median IP, uh, the median Supreme Court patent case 
cited in these recent patent cases, the median eight, the median year of decision is 1942. So apparently the Supreme Court looks at its stock of knowledge of patent law and thinks that what's recent includes stuff that is really quite old. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can think about why that might be, right? Patent Act was last, as I said, last deeply revised in 1952, a long time ago. There are parts of the Patent Act that have been the same, literally the same, since 1790, 1793. It's a very old statute. And there are chunks of it that haven't changed. Uh, so say, wow, world's most boring paper. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, finding I would, out I've that, read a lot of papers, Joe. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> finding out that <laughs> that in this domain the court is behaving in the way it behaves in many domains according to the existing body of work that looks at the court citation practices. Well, that's interesting because as I was explaining before, there was a basis for predicting something different, which was mm-hmm. you were going to look at patent cases and you're going to see the federal circuit playing a big role in patent law, it's just not true. And not only there, t- it's not yeah. there at all, basically. And basically, no, no circuit split cases. You know, it's just, it, there's a different pathway to the Supreme Court, and there's a different relationship with the lower courts. And you would expect those two things maybe to change the practice of citations. What you say, and you got a negative result. Yeah, that, that, that is just not what we observe. Now, it is it is true that in the Supreme Court's recent patent cases, again ninety four to now. They do cite the Federal Circuit more often than they do in their trademark cases or in the Supreme Court's copyright cases. That's true. But, um, that makes sense, though. But but, yeah. but interestingly, um, if if you look at how how often did they cite any given court of appeals case right. more than two times? Never. Um, at least two times, only eleven times. Compare that to how often they cite their own stuff, right? And there are many cases that were cited, you know, four times, five times, six, seven, eight, nine. The most often, I think, is Benito Boats, which is, was it 14? Um, uh, Cited in 14 different cases uh, in in the group of 72. 10, maybe, right? Was it only 10? If it's an, if it's it's 10 patent cases, it might be 14 uh, cases. Yeah, in patent cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, 14 of any kind, I think. Okay. Um, but so, again, the, the if, if you're looking at the theory of what the Federal Circuit was going to do when it was created, if you're thinking about a theory from, you know, the fact that it has this different role, uh, that cases get there in a different way, that, you know, you say, oh, my gosh, surely the Supreme Court's citation behavior in patent cases will not look like it looks in copyright or trademark or all these things, is not true. Well, what, what about this, though? So I want to get to the, the idea. I mean, there's so much we could talk about with this, and I, I assume we will because you're going to continue this work. Um, but what's to say, though, that the reason you create this court is because patents become so specialized that other courts, it's either going to take up too much of their time or it's going to screw up their work. And so what you would, or they're going to screw up the work. And so what you would expect to see is if the if the Federal Circuit were a success, is that the citation practice and, and the behavior of the Supreme Court toward it would mirror the Supreme Court's behavior toward the other courts of appeals on other issues. In other words, the fact that it looks the same as the other circuit courts with respect to other cases is a sign that it's been a smashing success. 
in an area where there might have been failure otherwise because of the specialized nature of the cases. Do you take my meaning? I mean, I don't uh, know. I, I don't. I don't quite understand <laughs> what the theory would be. Look, at the time, and, and I and I talk about this in the paper, you know, at the time, the prediction in, in back in the, in the 80s was that the Supreme Court was just going to get out of the patent business altogether. That there wouldn't be splits, which is a big driver of Supreme yeah. Court business, that it's a statute after all. So if the Federal Circuit screws it up, you can get Congress to fix it, right? You don't need the Supreme Court to, to – you need Congress to just amend the Patent Act, right? It amends the Copyright Act all the time. It amends the Lanham Act with some frequency. So so the thinking was, yeah, they're just not – the Supreme Court's just really not going to do anything in patent law anymore. You go back and look at the stuff in that era and, that, and people were making predictions like that. Now, other people would, were saying, boy, that would be terrible, not disagreeing with it. But saying they didn't like it, hmm. right? Saying that that wouldn't be a good thing for the patent system. But so I think if you're looking at what the prediction would be, you, you wouldn't say, oh, it's succeeding. You would say, what on earth is the Supreme Court doing hearing all these patent cases? They were supposed to be superfluous, largely, after 1982. And from 1982 till 1994, it looked like that was true. It looks like that was what had happened. Because they really heard very few cases. And then in 94, things start to change, right? The this, this steam builds and, and now they're hearing, you know, in the October 2013 term, they heard six patent cases. The October 2016 term that we just had, they heard six patent cases. That's a lot. So the main message is that the, any prediction that the federal circuit would basically be authoritative and the Supreme Court would kind of get out of the business is belied by the by not only the number of grants, but by the citation networks that you observe. Yes, when you actually look at at the level of citation, which is something that you can count, you can describe how you're counting it. So these aren't qualitative assessments of judicial reasoning about which people could have more robust and interesting and, and really fun debates, but that it would be highly contested and contestable, right? Um, I'm not... I'm not doing that, right? Um, we could, we could once we know what we establish the counting approach to be, we would all arrive at the same number, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and when you do that, and you see these patterns, you're like, yeah, it's not different at all. <laughs> the Supreme Court's totally involved in patent law. Uh, it believes that its stock of existing precedent, stretching back into the 1800s, is fully applicable and relevant to deciding contemporary patent cases. Uh, That message comes through loud and clear at the level of what does the court refer to when it's explaining its own judgments. Uh, And the latter half of the paper is sort of using, I mean, this is where it got sort of fun, where I'm these graphs are great. These graphs showing these citation networks and the connections between the cases. You actually show the clusters visually and you show the tables of citations. Yeah, because you've got, you know, tools that were developed to look at social networks like Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. Um, uh, w- p- technology or, or methodologies, algorithms used to analyze things like uh, the authoritativeness of web pages. Mm-hmm. Um, you can use all that stuff to examine citation yeah, networks. cases are just like people with friends. 
<laughs> exactly. Cases have they have likes <laughs> to course, just that depth. It, you you know you didn't code for dislikes. I mean, so you'd have to you look in there. There, you know how the Facebook now has all the crazy stuff on it, right? You've got not just the <laughs> thumbs up. You got all the other junk too, right? right? Yeah. Well, citation practices are kind of like that. You know, this it's C as authority, C as persuasive, C as an example of what never to do. You know, it's got all of these, and you'd have to really read the case to code at that level of well, semantic you, detail. Yeah, right? you could, and and some some have. So some of these citation studies, it is. A, I think it's a really fun area, but but some of these citation studies have tried to use, for example, um, the Shepard Citation Index, which is a common tool for lawyers that lawyers will have heard of, especially lawyers who are are of our vintage, who mm-hmm. had to learn to use Shepard. When you had to actually go to the books, and yeah. you had to like they, were, they um, actually published books, which would tell you any any yeah, in any given year. You know, what cases were cited. Yeah. Uh, um, and would characterize stuff. Yeah. So it would be, oh, a po- that's a positive use. That's a negative use. That's a deep, you know, this is an extensive discussion. That's a just a bare, like, so there's all this characterization stuff in mm-hmm. Shepherds, right? And there are some of these studies that I talk about in the paper uh, that tried to use that information from yeah. shepherds to affect the way they counted or what they focused on. Like, let's only count the positive ones or let's count the negative mm-hmm. ones. I didn't do any of that. Um, I, I went the way of some other studies would suggest. Um, and in fact, I think I did it to a greater degree than than the ones I even talk about in the paper um, where you just say, look, there, there. Once you start doing that, you start to get into things about which people can agree or disagree. And that, and, and so – But maybe this is – so this is where I would push back a little bit. Maybe this is one of those areas where to understand it, you have to get into that, the fact that people agree or disagree. Because after all, in the end, you're trying to draw – and this is why I thought it was so interesting with your psychology background, right? You're trying to draw psycho, psychological inferences about a relatively small court. You know, with an interesting group psychology, individual psychology, with kind of changing membership. And you're trying to draw some inferences about what they think about patent law. Like, you know, they're granting more. Why are they doing this? What do they think about? Do they think they need to take a more aggressive role? Do they, what do they, do they have a positive vision for patent law that they're trying to establish case by case and they're working it out amongst themselves? And so, I mean, it seems to me ultimately the project is to try to draw some inferences about why this institution, which is made of, a relatively small number of people is doing what it's doing, right? Yes, I I think that is, um, and and I think the other th- thing that I'm writing is is more of an effort to do that, at least in in doctrinal terms. I not I don't it doesn't quite put people on the couch, but it, um, <laughs> but and, and just the no, but this but the n- nice thing about these numbers, right? Is it's a way of saying I, you know I don't know why you're doing what you're doing, but here's what you've done, right? And it doesn't look that yes. different than anything you've done over here, right? That's the main. And this is the, this is the piece which establishes that. Yeah. So if your if your thought was, oh, they're engaged in a project that is fundamentally unlike a bunch of other things that they do, certainly the citation practice doesn't bear that out at all, mm-hmm. right? Quite the contrary, and uh, and patent law doesn't look different from copyright or trademark, and none none of them look different from the run of the mill established in these citation studies that have been going on for decades. So, but but hadn't looked at this stuff. Uh, so, you know, to that degree, it sounds like, um, you know, it's, it's law. They're, they're treating it like they treat the other legal things that they deal with. Um, but maybe like a little bit contrary to what you said, maybe more aggressively because no circuit splits. Right. And so, 
they are behaving a little differently. Well, and yeah. and, the, and so that in that other paper, I'm I'm trying to develop a, a an understanding about what they're doing in the patent cases, and I I think it is an understanding that it does help separate them a little bit and explain a little bit why there's been this uptick. Um, and it has to do with a certain vision of, um, and I think the nine O's part of it is a, an important mm-hmm. part of it. The fact that there's such a high degree of unanimity across opinions authored by basically all of them, uh, that I think it's become a place where they can express a, a set of, uh, consensus elite legal process values, literally legal pro- quote legal pro- like mm-hmm. capital L capital P legal process values, um, uh, and and that that is serving a function in a context where there's a bunch of other stuff where they're going at each other hammer and tong in five four cases on on extremely divisive issues. Right. right. Those are those are areas where they 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 are they are not conducive for expressing the sort of widely shared legal craft values of a of a cons, of a kind of dominant elite consensus view about what law should be like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the patent cases do let them express those values, hmm. so they can use them as vehicles for. Um, embodying and acting out a kind of vision of, well, this is the area where it's a peaceful, easy feeling. We can all get along and we can do things like talk about stare decisis where we all agree and we can talk about um, other value, legal process values that that um, like the relationships between courts and agencies and other things that are significant yeah. to us, right? Um, but that's the other paper. Uh, th- this one – which I kind of got into as a side project from the other one where I was thinking, oh, well, I wonder if you could see just on the way they behave in their citations that they think the, this field is a different kind of field. So actually the whole project began because I was thinking, oh, if if you could see that difference in what they were citing, that would be really important to know, right? Huh. Um, yeah. And it turns out not to be true. But that was neat to find that out. So I taught I have, myself yeah. how to do all this citation stuff and I'm going to keep doing it because I think I, I want to see – and now it's now it's not really about the explaining the patent stuff anymore. It's just I, I think it's beautiful to see this way of thinking about uh, the fabric of doctrine. It's a kind of doctrinalism that isn't about discussing individual cases. It's about aggregating over a very large body of behavior. You know, and it made me think about, yeah, it made me think about like, what is the meaning of citation? And I was thinking back to being a clerk and and trying to think about, you know, when I wrote a draft opinion, what was I thinking about when I cited a case? Like, why did I choose that case? And then I'm thinking about how all chambers are different and, and some are going to, you know, the judges will say, I want, you know, they'll have five cases in mind and then you fill in other cases maybe and other, others, you just, they'll just take the draft and other chambers, the judge will do all the writing and, and we'll be drawing mainly from memory. And some of the judges will do research. I just, it seems like, I don't know if all of that averages out in a sense, I'm using that in a very you know, (laughs) uh, loose way, but, uh, but it, it, it does seem to come back to psychology again. And you're, and, and the paper is like, interestingly, like poking around on the exterior of psychology, right? Just by counting, like, here's, the, here are the communications that you have made. Yeah. Right. And, you know, what, what can we learn about that? And in the aggregate, I mean, everything you said about, cause I was a clerk too, right? So everything about the individual choices and it all seems so individualistic. And right. What could you, I mean, this is often true about, uh, about, 
um, aggregating measures of behavior, right, is that central tendencies emerge, patterns emerge. It feels to the individual and it is to the individual an individual thing, right? Why did I cite that? Because it was the appropriate thing to cite. What do you mean why did I cite it? Mm-hmm. Like, because it was a good thing to explain what I was doing, right? Well, aggregate that across judges' chambers, across courts, across years, right? Um, the pattern keeps being the same. That's what these studies find. And state Supreme Courts, not just the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, and not just recently, but, you know, 19 19- – the, one of those, uh, the Friedman State Supreme Court study went back into the 1870s. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Right? And it's and the pattern that is throughout the 1900s, it's the same. I had another question for you, though. Okay. Why do you persist in uh, writing IP in lowercase letters without periods? Because, well, I think having a, lo- a bunch of periods everywhere is annoying. Yeah, it is. I agree. Um, I think when it's in capitals, it just looks very shouty. <laughs> So I just – Is that is that just you or do other people in the field also write lowercase? Apparently it like, might be just me because you're like the fourth person to mention it. <laughs> is that right? So um, – I have to say it did look a little precious. And I've I don't seen, use – I've I, seen that in your other writing too. You've I, Maybe in maybe your textbook Lowercase IP? Yeah, lowercase IP. Yeah. Like I don't use periods with with a, with a lot of abbreviations. Any, like Mr. I would just do MR without a period. Like I, a professor, I just do PROF without a period. I would just use a first name. I, <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot I, the the getting rid of the dots in abbreviations is something I've been that's that's pretty widespread with me. So I, I want to it's a total waste. I want to get rid of patents. You want to get rid of dots. Totally. We all we all have our we all have our uh, um, our quests in the yeah. in life. So so I want to do a I want to do um and, and I think there may be in some of the other citation studies that have been done and the the Supreme Court database, the the SPAFE database for political scientists and yeah. stuff. I think there I'm trying to figure out now if there's a way that I can do this without actually trying to find a way to do it, you know, little bit by little bit, but see what the aggregations of data that might exist out there already. But I, I think doing a, a sort of an eighteen ninety one forward on you know, antitrust, telecom, patent, trademark, copyright, and and the and the yeah. because those are natural interconnected things um, in structuring competition and regulation as a strategy for dealing with the absence of competition, and so that's why antitrust and telecom go together, and that's why antitrust and IP go together. So, seeing what that would look like, right, eighteen ninety to now, and what what emerges as the dominant authorities and how those things cluster and what that tells you about the mm-hmm. shape of the law. It, one thing that felt satisfying with that stuff at the end of the paper is you really, I don't know, it's, I, it sounds kind of crazy, but you sort of feel like you're looking at the law. Like, oh my God, it's a picture of the law. <laughs> That's what the law looks like. And it looks like a big jellyfish. <laughs> um, but it's really interesting to me. Yeah, it, It's I, pleasurable. I, I was... So in a way, like the, the citation stripped of semantics, stripped of the core of the argument, in a, in a weird way, like it didn't appeal to me at all. Mm. You know what I mean? Like just personally, like it right. just like the idea of just kind of listing out the authorities without the reasons. And it seemed th- that's it. That's just kind of a personal kind of reaction. On the other hand, like I appreciated like it's a really kind of a Joe thing in a way. <laughs> 
right? That like, <laughs> what does you, that mean? Well, that you're like, you just are really interested in the ways that people are communicating. Like, what are they saying to one another? Right. And, and in a way, a citation to a case is a communication through time. Totally. And it makes total sense given your educational background, the way you, the way you talk to people now, the way you perceive the world, that you would be interested in tracing out that communication. It is a kind of history, right? Which is like, you map it out graphically and it's fascinating to do that. It's like having a history book, which is like flattened onto a single page Mm. uh, with lines. And it's interesting though, that that these are, it's a history kind of stripped of semantic content other than those connections, you know? Um, I don't know. But but in a way, it it seemed like so you, you know what I mean? (laughs) I don't yet, but I'll think about it. (laughs) But it's, it's like this, it's not stripped of the semantics entirely but it is it's it's like the skeleton yeah the skeleton of or, or it's like seeing the a roman road now like see you can go to england and or or parts of europe and you can see these places where you, it's like that's basically a roman road yeah and the tracks are still there because it laid out a pattern and and as you said before you know people go back to the pattern Right, so the things that have been cited a bunch get cited a bunch more. I, I was thinking like dinosaur fossils. You know how like you know you, you find the things and you figure out how they fit together. And you know they often you know, they put them together wrong. Like famously, there'll be a museum that's had it there for twenty years, and they figure out oh this this right. head should have been on that, 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 this right. have been on that body, right? Because <clears throat> the, the fossils are there without like the semantics concerning their connections and what the right. what the tissue was like and everything else. And so our ability to kind of reconstruct from can, can be wrong. On the other hand. Boy, we've learned a lot about dinosaurs, like the fact that they even existed, like we learned about from these right. fossils. In a way, these like just studying the connections is kind of like studying these these fossils. And the case law system, right? The case law process yeah. is a process where we don't think it is suitable, Judge Posner notwithstanding, I hope he enjoys his retirement. We don't think it's suitable to just say, here's why I think this outcome is sensible. Oh, I love that idea. Right. I love that. Without <laughs> yeah. connecting it to right. Right. the other things that have already happened. Right. And the, it, no, so, I, I, you know, like, love I, it or hate it, right. that's a totally no, 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 inadequate no. judicial um, act. No, and where I judge, I think it's important. Like adhering to authority is really important, right? And this Expressing is the way you do it. about that authority. Like you can – right. This is – yeah, exactly. So and we're studying just, that. And yeah. this is why I count them – even in the even if the first time a case is mentioned in a decision is in the dissent, right? That's I count that as mm-hmm. one of the citations because that is if you look at all the judges who participated and all of them are explaining why they think it should be one way and not the other for that case, right? Here are the threads they're connecting back to all these other things that have already happened, mm-hmm. right? That's integral to the dissenters also don't think it's adequate to just say, well, I don't think it should come out this way. They link it to prior things. I think I'm doing a better job of explaining how this fits with the other stuff than you are. So here's my competing vision. So I'm going to make a bunch of connections. A lot of them will be the same. They'll talk about the same cases. But occasionally they'll talk about a different one. And it's like, ah, that's interesting. So if you look at the full court and its way of expressing that it came out this way and not some other way, each of these mentions was to them critically important. And if and if it weren't, it wouldn't be there. But it is there and so it's important. Fascinating. It's an influence. <laughs> that's yeah, that's right. Yeah. So what else do we want to say? 
Uh, nothing. This is this is the part of the show where we'd say, "Hey, you know, this was such a great paper." And if is there, is there anything else that we should talk <laughs> you about? You should come back a... and blah, blah, blah. yeah. So well, I'll but, come but back. Except except I always mean all those things. Of course I do too. Right? I mean it's like, and I really you're right. This is what we say. And I really am asking you, like, is there is there stuff about this paper? <laughs> like like I always am. Like, is there really is there stuff about this paper we didn't talk about that people should know? Other than of course just read the paper. But I mean you know, it, I don't know. I mean yeah. I think it's fun. I think it's interesting. I would like to see more of this. There's very, there's actually very little of this done in, in there's, there's not much done using these methods that looks at a particular doctrinal area and tries to say something about it as an area. There's a lot of political science stuff that looks at well, of course, there's all the poli-sized stuff about the attitudinal model, mm-hmm. but that's what explains outcomes. Right. This is a different way of trying to get at some of the political science stuff. Uh, what are the most authoritative opinions of all the Supreme Court decisions ever? Right. Those are the Fowler studies. Right. That tend to talk more that way. Mm-hmm. Right. That look at all the court's work in a kind of undifferentiated mass and say, what of all that is – and it turns out to be some common law stuff, not surprising. Um, But to to take this set of tools and approaches and say, well, yeah, what would this – what would environmental law look like? If you looked at it in this way. Yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat surprised and I know we're going on. But I'm somewhat surprised that no one's written code that just sucks in all the cases – did what you did and then applies that community grouping coloring that you did and environmental law will just fall out as its own color, right? Right. And there's, and so there are, um, there's a guy at the university of Baltimore named Colin Starger who's done some interesting mapping stuff. And there is, there is a site that does some network mapping stuff. Um, but at least in terms of the publicly available stuff on this mapping site, the name of which I'm, Sorry that I'm blanking on right now, and I mm-hmm. apologize for that. I'll send you a link to it for the show notes. Um, the The network stuff is – so, for example, the public interface that you can use and go on there and you can say, show me a map between this case and that case. Um, it will do that for you, right? Uh, if you name the endpoints, and it will go out three degrees. So it will say, are they connected directly? Are they connected through another? Are they connected through two others, mm-hmm. right? And it will show you everything that connects them out to those degrees. So there's total Kevin Bacon of correct judicial cases. Yeah. Yes, we could do six degrees of Marbury. Like, <laughs> what percentage of the U.S. reports can you hit within six jumps of Marbury? My guess is a huge percentage of it. Yeah. Um, but but you can't. What you can't do with that public interface that they have yet. I would love it if they would do this, but I don't know anyone who's done this. Maybe they have written the code and they just whatever. But if you if you could just say, you know what, show me, do the f- kind of figures I have, right, between this year and that year, show me and make sure at least the following cases are in that map. And then it'll just pull with it everything, everything else. You know. everything so you would it, just yeah. know the famous – you would just name a few of the famous environmental law cases that you knew, right? right. Um, you know, Swank and – Luhan and you know just put some other things in there and said, well mm-hmm. surely any map that had those would be you know a bunch of environmental law stuff would be in there right yeah I, I, I yeah. don't know I don't think anyone has a publicly facing 
thing like that. There might be some proprietary things that do that. I could see why for right, research it just purposes. Seems like we, it seems like we could write this code tonight. <laughs> it just... <laughs> Like, oh my God, it's so, I think it's a lot more complicated than yeah, that. Probably, but that's Pulling. how most coding projects start. It just, it seems, it's conceptually simple and then details get in the way and then right. it gets, details, then, you, you know, yeah, that's, that's how it usually We've goes. We've gone pretty long for an episode about a boring paper that we were, oh we were going to do. Now you're going to trash the paper after people put this much effort into. Well, I don't think it's, I've already said 30 times. I think it's really fun and interesting, but yeah, I. And know. now you're saying it's boring. Well. You have two minds you, about you've it. You've been pretty pained, but. Pretty pained. Yeah, you seem pretty pained by it all, but that's oh, all no, right. not at all. I mean, I'm pained by my eye. Oh, that's it. So I'm kind of looking at you like this the whole time. Yeah. Um, there was, uh, hmm. So I would love it if there were tools like that, that you could just, you know, have these maps flying at you, no problem. And it just doesn't, it's not there. Oh, that, <laughs> I know the one thing I wanted to add. I, I would love it. Like, I, I imagine a totally a Facebook type website where every time the Supreme Court posts a case, it's it's like a new Facebook post. And then every time it's posted, it goes back and it likes a bunch of former posts. Oh yeah. Nice. Right? It's not really the same model though, is it? Cause it's a post which likes a bunch of other posts. But the other posts would be the prior, po- the prior cases. Right? The, yeah, 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 yeah. It's more like a traditional social network, right? Where you were just friends. <laughs> yeah. You could add enemies, though. That would be, that would be something. It would be. I mean, you know, another thing you could imagine is w- what would, what would judicial writing be like if it was done in a way that tried to optimize the um, creation of these sorts of infographs after the fact, right? So you would want them to do things like code as positive and negative. Like with this citation, you wouldn't just have it there. You might change the color it was in. Oh, I wouldn't want that. Like just express different things about it. Right. It's just, um, yeah, I just don't think of the, you know, the, I, I don't like the signals in the blue book anyway. I just, I just don't think of <laughs> writing as that discreet. You know, I, I always, I, maybe it's because I struggle, but when I'm writing, I always feel like I'm grasping towards something. Right. And it feels much more continuous than discreet to me. Like okay. A, you know what I mean? I mean, so yeah, you cite something, but why are you citing it? I mean, I can say C because it, it, I can say C or C, for example, I can do those things, yeah. but, but it does seem to me oftentimes there's always something inexpressible, um, that you're trying to approximate. And, um, so having to be more specific about it might make it harder to accomplish. Like you might not be able to articulate why. So it's like, right. well, and I'm supposed I, I, to put yeah. it in green if it means this, but I don't know if it means right. that. So and I, I can't and put I it really in green. I really do believe in clear writing, so I believe in clarity. So I don't, I'm not saying that you should be intentionally, you know, um, uh, obscuring or obfuscatory. But um, on the other hand, to like write with an eye toward later discretization, you know, to make it, it seems like, it, it's like when I, when I talk to students about like reading cases who are just learning, it, I'm like, everybody who writes an opinion, they start with an outline, right? And the outline has the moving parts of the argument. And then it's filled up with a kind of prose, which may make the medicine go down more easily. But like your job is to kind of get back to the outline, or at least that's a job in, in reading is to, sure. so there's this intermediate step where, where the outline is filled up with words, right? Yep. Um, and so I do believe in that because I think that's part of being analytical is getting back to that outline or at least making your own outline. But there's something that 
maybe it's because we're at the end of the recording here and, and, and it's a little bit late, but there's, but there's something that just feels wrong about writing with an eye toward that, that skeletonization of the opinion. You know what I mean? Okay. It's, it'd be like writing a novel in a, trying to make the cliffs notes easier to write. Yeah, but of course, novels aren't written for the purpose of writing. I, I, absolutely, notes. that's that's why it's. I almost hate to. I feel like we just got to end it because otherwise, it would be too long a conversation. <laughs> okay. Uh, so right. we're not back next week. Well, we we I don't we're know. not, and then we'll be back the week after that. We'll try. Make no promises, though. <laughs> we don't promise anything, and if we did promise, you shouldn't believe it. So you shouldn't even promise that we won't be back next week. That's true. I'm not promising it. I don't think we'll be back next week. It drops when it drops. That oh should my. be that should be our tagline. Speaking of bananas. <laughs> oh my god. It drops when it drops. Oh boy. Okay, that's it. Bye, Joe.